You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. This is the next in our ongoing series of COVID podcasts. Today, this information is current as at Wednesday, 18th of March. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Professor Julie Leesk, who's a social scientist, Master of Public Health, PhD and overall winner of the 2019 Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. She's best known for her work on health communication and vaccine uptake, but she also teaches risk communication for health emergencies. Today we're speaking with Julie about the societal and psychological effects of a pandemic and what GPs can do at a personal and societal level to prevent the flow-on effects from this pandemic. Welcome, Julie. Hi, Sean. All right. Well, let's get straight into it. I've heard it said that in a pandemic, more people are harmed from the societal disruption than from the disease itself. We've already seen some of this behaviour with panic buying of everything from toilet paper to canned food. Can you shed any light as to what might be going on here? Yeah, first of all, to say that we're facing some very, very serious, um, you know, looks at the mortality from this. So I'm not sure if we can say that the societal impacts will be worse. And in in some ways, it's hard to sort of weigh those two things anyway. But there are known um, psychological and social harms that come from health emergencies. And of course, we've seen one of the major ones, which is the stigmatisation of particular population groups early in this um, episode. And as we all know, there's been this um, buying of toilet paper and now other basic goods that has drained the supermarket shelves. And what we're getting now is this sort of daily routine of reporting about it in the media, which I, I think is not helping as well. So when this first began, there was a bit of a deficit in government communication about how people should be starting to prepare and what they need to start to prepare for. And I think in that gap, you know, there were a few suggestions out there about stockpiling. So you saw these early behaviours that were then reported and then it became psychologically contagious. People saw that there was going to be a scarcity of particular products and they themselves started to stockpile as well. And we've seen that go on for many weeks now. Um, And it's a real signal actually that those sorts of behaviours will continue to occur and government and industry need to find ways to regulate them in reasonable ways. Mm. So what you've mentioned is uh, is spot on as to what's happening. What does GPs can we do to try and hose down some of this? Well, first of all, it's to recognise that, you know, we're being exposed to images of people having fights in the aisles and so forth, but there are plenty of people who are, are not in the news who are not trying to buy too much and and who are trying to cooperate and support others and share their their scarce goods. So first of all, it's to recognise that there is a lot of capacity for cooperation in societies. It's how we survive. And uh, that's a good thing and a real strength. And we'll see instances of that over this long haul over the coming months. GPs, you know, as leaders in their practices and in their communities have a a very strong and influential role to play in helping people manage what they need to do in practical ways uh, and in ways that are informed by evidence. 
I was speaking to a friend of mine from New York who was saying that over there, everyone is every man for himself. But I think at least in Australia, we do have this sort of societal expectation that you will look after your fellow countrymen and think that's actually going to have an effect during times like this. There is certainly the capacity for great solidarity between, you know, many different groups in society. Uh, and and again, that's a strength. I know we're getting exposed to the, the less usual but very unpleasant aspects of human behaviour, which are inevitable. We don't yet usually get to see them in stark, such stark examples as, as the drained supermarket shelves. But uh, hopefully, you know, we'll see some great examples of ingenuity and social care that come out of this and happen. So if we move on to our next question, so the patients that I'm seeing are falling into three broad categories. Those are very fearful and over paranoid about catching SARS-CoV-2 and they'll go to extraordinary lengths to avoid it. Then there's probably the majority who are concerned but really rationally and sensibly so. And then there's those who I find particularly frustrating who aren't at all worried and they have no regard for the safety of themselves, which is their choice, but they also have no regard for the safety of anyone else. How do you think, as GPs, we should be approaching each of these groups? Yeah, this is a real challenge, Sean. We've learned a lot about this in our work where we've developed packages for general practice and community health in in talking with parents who won't vaccinate their kids or are very hesitant to um, in the sharing knowledge about immunisation package. So I'm drawing a little bit on that, but recognising that it won't always be a a perfect sort of map over to, um, to managing COVID. But you know, starting with that group who are very, very fearful and extremely risk averse, I think, first of all, there's the work on the self to do. If you're a very busy GP, uh, you've got a waiting room full of people and you come in with someone who's looking like they're going to waste your time with seemingly uh, ridiculous perceptions of risk and ideas about how they can prevent it, then the work is, first of all, on the self to recognise that It can be stressful in those situations to try to recognise one's feelings of frustration, stress and sit with those and just create a little bit of space for that patient. And the first thing is to validate and acknowledge how they're feeling. And that can go actually a long way to having a more collaborative conversation. There is research that suggests that a simple acknowledgement and it only has to be a couple of words or even a nod, can signal to the patient that you've heard them and then you can both move on. And and in some studies, they're more likely to actually process what you say next because people who are very stressed don't process information as well um, as when they're calm. So the validation is vital. It's worth investing just a little bit of time in that, maybe asking them what they're particularly concerned about. And then once once that's dealt with, a rapid setting of an agenda, look, I'm going to set out for you what I know and what your your options are is a really good idea. So that can be some education about how this virus is transmitted and how people are mostly infected based on your knowledge of, of it so far. Of course, we're dealing with a, some levels of uncertainty here and that's important to acknowledge as well. And then maybe to close off that conversation, giving them some kind of resource to take away, whether it be a fact sheet of how to protect yourself and your family or something 
from the um, state government or territory um, website. Uh, and there are quite a lot of resources on those websites that are available. So that's with that group who are very fearful. For the group in the middle, I guess because they've got appropriate levels of risk appraisal and intended behaviour, you'd certainly hope, then making sure that um, they continue to keep up to date with the information and to be leaders in their communities um, because they've got that good balance. They can be encouraging their families and their communities um, to be behaving in ways that minimise the risk of infection. They can be keeping up to date with what health departments are advising and uh, they can be helping their families to prepare. And for the third group, uh, those who, and there are people who, who do not see this as the risk that it's being made out to be and are very cynical um, and mistrusting of the warnings. And so we will have a group in society who are not willing to cooperate with recommendations for isolation of cases or quarantine of contacts. So those groups, it's very challenging to work with those groups, but thinking about models that already work for you as a GP. So for example, a smoker who's not really that ready to stop smoking and um, the motivational interviewing techniques that are taught with smokers. So finding out where they're at, how ready they are to cooperate with the desired behaviours and, and working with their own motivations to change and to perform the behaviours that are mm. going to be necessary to reduce spread. So they're just some thoughts from other areas. And you know, GPs have a lot of resources and experience themselves that they can draw on, trust that experience. But I think across all of these groups, give a little bit of time for listening and question asking to get a good sense of where that patient is at with their thinking before launching into the answers. Very good advice. So Julie, as GPs, we're often asked to reassure or clear people who are very low risk. They don't make the criteria for getting a swab, but they're also very reluctant to self-isolate for 14 days. How should we go about reassuring these people that they're low risk, um, but that they still need to self-isolate? Yeah, so I would be, first of all, checking on exactly what the recommendations for these people are from your local state or territory health department website. The recommendations, for example, where I'm based in New South Wales, for suspected cases uh, who, who may be awaiting a test for um, quarantine and, of course, quarantine of contacts of, of confirmed cases. So here we're talking about um, a group of people who may not be willing to cooperate where that their cooperation is necessary. Um, of course, you know, as GPs will know, there are reg regulatory structures that will enable uh, the state to intervene in someone who's harming the health of the public with their infectious disease. And they've been in public health, health acts for a, a long period of time. But I think with regulation, the first place to go is to inform people of, of what the requirements are. To use language that is quite clear that there is a requirement uh, and, and this has been set in law if people seem extremely resistant to, um, to doing what's asked of them. But also to be absolutely sure that, that your recommendation is flowing on from what the, the state government rec re recommendations are. And maybe also with the language distancing oneself from the requirements. So obviously 
you want to keep that patient's trust, you want to keep them as a patient. How do you then communicate that something will be required of them? It's to say that these decisions have been made by the authorities because they help protect the wider community. It's really important that you play your part, you know, and even maybe using metaphors that might be helpful to the patient. You're playing your part on a team or whatever works. And and so I think working with all of those things, but again, checking with the patient who um, appears like they're not going to be compliant with a recommended action and finding out what they perceive as being the main barriers and helping them think through how they can overcome those barriers that might be a worry about work and so forth. Okay, great. And finally, um, GPs are going to have to communicate rationing throughout this whole situation, uh, whether it's testing as it is now or maybe in the future rationing of ventilators. How best can those difficult conversations with our patients and communities be had? Well, first of all, we need to be asking the healthcare planners how they're starting to go about that decision-making or planning for that decision-making. And I would imagine that in uh, facilities with ventilators, there hopefully now will, will be some planning starting to happen around how they will make those decisions. Uh, and that, I think, is the one that's causing a great deal of anxiety right now because we don't want an Italy where you've got to decide who gets the ventilator, for example. I know that GPs are dealing with these on a, a different scale in terms of access to testing and, and PPE and so forth. So there are issues in primary care, but the, the ventilator one is also very vexing. So are there um, clinical ethics committees in a hospital? Are there informed, collaborative decision-making processes happening right now to help to guide clinicians on those very, very difficult decisions should they arise? And then being able to defer to the fact that there has been a decision-making in process. It hasn't been done by me. It's been done by this group or this party and this is why they've made that decision and acknowledging that these are really hard decisions. We're in an extraordinary time right now that many of us have not experienced. Um, I I mean, I'm thinking about mental models like what was it like in the war or potentially what was it like in the Great Depression and thinking about, well, in these extraordinary times, what do people need to do to band together and also to acknowledge that some of these resources will be for a time in limited supply. I think also one thing that's important to remember is that there is going to be light at the end of this relatively long tunnel and that we will get over this pandemic. This virus will then circulate in the the yearly seasonal strains and hopefully there'll be a vaccine against it. There will certainly be um, a fair bit of population immunity. So we will see this through. The world saw SARS through H1N1. I know they were different. But just having that sense of this is going to be a tough time where we're battening down the hatches for a storm coming, let's see it through, look after each other, try to look after ourselves, our mental health as well, and um, we will get to a light at the end of that tunnel. Look, I think that's a very, very important message and it will be interesting to see the wash up from it. But morale, self-care are going to be extremely important with this. Look, Julie, thank you so much for your time today. I suspect we'll be speaking again as this situation unfolds. Thanks.